guest today is an old friend, Ben Heller, who needs no introduction to the listeners of this podcast because he has been with us before talking about exciting stuff like contingent bonds. uh, And he's been working on that recently as well. But today, Ben kindly agreed to come and talk to us about an instrument and set of incidents that have long fascinated us and are an important part of sovereign debt history and yet have not really been written about except for a wonderful Bloomberg article So by Matt Levine. So welcome, Ben. Thanks for having me. So, Ben, just to provide some context to the story, you were an early purchaser of these instruments called the FRANS. They are, uh, if I uh, remember correctly, the acronym, they were uh, flexible rate accrual notes. Yep. And that's correct. You bought them early. And then even though uh, I think it is fair to say you understood their really unusual provisions, perhaps a little bit of a time into their life, uh, you decided to part with them, perhaps after uh, shedding a lot of tears. And and the, the part of the story that most of us know from Matt Levine's piece happens much later when the interest rates on this 200 million bond issue go up so high to over 100% that the recoveries on them, or at least the claimed recoveries, go into the billions. And you were kind enough to come and talk to my contract students earlier this term about this incredible story. And after that, we begged you to please come on the podcast and tell the story. And you were kind enough to do that. So might you um, begin by telling us about the origins of the story, uh, your finding these bonds, uh, why you purchased them, and then sort of how it evolves and uh, once you set it up, then Mark and I will ask you questions uh, uh, about it. Sure. And of course, it's a painful experience. It was a painful experience for me because I missed out. I did all the work, missed out on the benefits. So I relived it once with your class. Now I got to relive it again. Um, and I'll shed salty tears tonight uh, after we're done, I'm sure, um, because it was really the, the trade of the decade for some people. And we were not able to participate in that because we had other things going on in Argentina that prevented us. Uh, from litigating. But when we got in, you're right, we had no uh, thought of litigating. And I think I should probably set the stage for you a little bit. These bonds were issued in March of 1998. So it's a long, long time ago. And the market was quite different then. One of the big differences, I would say, between then and now is that countries didn't have really well thought out, well telegraphed, well planned issuance programs. Most of them hadn't issued that much uh, Eurobond debt. It was early in the history of Eurobonds. Their curves were very incomplete. And they tended to issue on an ad hoc basis. When they needed money, they would issue. And uh, a lot of the times, the way that they would do that is they would just issue something that was cheap to the curve uh, in order to attract people in. And um, 
as the curve filled up for some of these countries, it was harder to do that in a way where it was not obvious that the country was simply bombing its curve and hurting its uh, the people who had uh, shown uh, faith in them by buying their bonds earlier. So the way that the dis- that um, the cheapness of bonds was often disguised was by complexity. And Argentina was really at the forefront of that. And the Frans are a signal example of that. So we got involved because we got a call like from Morgan Stanley, who was the lead, if, if I remember correctly, uh, saying, hey, we're issuing this new bond. It's an unusual structure. Um, it's, uh, it's a floating rate bond, but instead of floating off a short rate, like a short US, like LIBOR, uh, this bond is going to float off of an Ar- Argentina rate and not a short rate, but a long rate. So this bond was a 2005 bond. And for, uh, I mean, there were some bells and whistles, but for the most part, it was basically the coupon would reset every six months based on the yield of a fixed rate Argentina 2006 bond that had been issued previously. Um, so uh, the way the bond was sold was this bond will always be around par because if Argentina 06s sell off, the coupon will go up just enough so that that coupon is a market coupon. And Again, it was an earlier time, so people didn't think in probability of default, default intensity terms. They thought in more like standard fixed income terms. And in standard fixed income terms, that sort of, that sort of makes sense. Now, we knew enough at the time to know that it didn't quite make sense because how it would behave in default is, is, uh, is sort of a trickier question. And what happens to the shape of the curve matters. And the, and the thing that we discovered is we said, gosh, this bond really should respond to the shape of the curve when the curve is steep. Uh, you, you, this bond should be worth more than par. And when the curve is inverted, it should be worth less than par. And at the time that the bond was issued, the Argentina curve was relatively steep, but they were issuing this bond at par. So we said, well, this bond is like four or five basis points cheap. Uh, we're not quite sure what the best way to hedge it is, but I, we'll figure something out. We have that much of an edge. Um, so let's get involved. And we bought a bunch of the bonds uh, in 1998, um, right at the issuance. Um, but we actually got out of them not that much longer after because people sort of started to realize that it was responsive to curve shape. And also we found there was actually quite difficult to hedge uh, in, a, in, in a way. There's a lot of adjustment they need to do the hedge. And we were just sort of uncertain. Well, what happens if the curve gets really inverted because Argentina started to get in trouble and often when a country gets in trouble, the curve inverts. So we made a couple of points and we got out of the trade. Now, because we were, had been in the trade, we knew the bonds pretty well. And they popped up on the radar screen again for us, probably in, in 2000, if I'm not mistaken. And the reason that it attracted our attention is because everything in Argentina was getting sold at that point. People had started to realize that Argentina was in very serious trouble. The fault was, uh, was a distinct possibility. And I think it is, uh, an additional thing is that you know, people, even as late as you know, 19, 1999, people would still say things like countries will never default on their bonds because it's too hard to restructure them and bonds were smaller relative to loans. And then, then Ecuador defaulted, as you remember, and people said, oh my God, we can default on bonds. We can default on Brady bonds. And so Argentina was getting into trouble. People were realizing that bonds are not default free. Um, and so uh, we uh, ended up in a situation where all the Argentine bonds were getting sold. And of course, the France, because they were so complex, um, they were less liquid. Uh, they didn't have the same kind of sponsorship as other bonds. So as everything started to get sold, the Frans actually were trading at a lower price than the 06s, and both of them well below par, which is not something that should theoretically happen. Because if you think Argentina is in trouble, um, 
you know, that Argentina 06 is never going to trade above par again uh, because Argentina is going to be in trouble for a long time. You know, the coupon is going to reset on the Fran. The coupon on the Fran will always be higher than the coupon on the 06. It's also a year shorter, which should help. So in that situation, it's actually not that hard to hedge. You can buy the Fran and short, uh, and short the 06, and you have a, a lot of room to make money. And the only way you lose is suddenly Argentina becomes an awesome credit and starts trading above par again, which that was the least of, uh, of our worries. So we put the trade on for that reason, and we felt, okay, now we really need to think about what happens if there's a default. And gosh, you know, they're not going to default. Argentina's not going to default instantly. We're probably going to get two or three coupons where the reset on that coupon is very, very high. And that will be enough that we'll make a lot of money on this trade. And if, in a default, if it defaults, in theory, we looked at this bond, Rick, what happens if, the, if it defaults? Because yield on a defaulted bond is sort of a meaningless concept, but there was nothing in the document that suggested that Morgan Stanley would stop uh, uh, spotting the price of the 06 and setting the coupon. And we asked them and they said, no, we would still set the coupon, we think. Um, so we said, all right, this seems like a great trade. Um, in fact, the Argentina situation kind of unraveled very quickly at the end. So what happened is the, the, uh, the reset date was uh, October 10th, um, uh, April 10th and October 10th. So on October 10th, 2001, we got our first really high reset on the frame, which is I think about 12.5%. Uh, and we we're pretty excited about that. But of course, then Argentina two months later defaulted. So we only got one clean reset and we were never paid that coupon right so we never actually achieved any superior cash flows from earning the fran uh so we owned this fran we were short some other argentine bonds when argentina defaulted you know we covered the other bonds we said okay now we we own some defaulted bonds and uh we're going to go into the restructuring and the only thing that we're going to push for with respect to those frans is like we hoped we would get a year of higher coupons Right. And we said, OK, it's setting at 12 and a half. Maybe, you know, they'll spot it in April when it's in default and we'll get 30 or 40. And, and we can push for six months or a year of extra coupon. That's probably sufficient for us. Um, and, you know, we can get a higher uh, recovery. Um, and we also thought that the restructuring wouldn't necessarily take that long in Argentina. Of course, as you know, it took a very long time and we kept owning these bonds and we kept telling Morgan Stanley, OK, do the calculation. I don't think they were thrilled with the fact that we were pushing them to do that. But they did, and uh, the coupons were uh, very, very high, and we kept accruing PDI. But again, we, I don't think it was ever our expectation that we would get paid PDI for years and years and years, and our ask was for much less than that. And so when Guillermo Nielsen came around and consulted uh, with creditors, again, there was no negotiation in Argentina, but there was some consultation. We just said, listen, here's the deal. We own this bond, and there was another bond called the SPAN that was sort of similar. We own these two bonds. And you know, we were promised these bonds will always trade at par and, you know, that they were special and that they were superior. And we, you know, we relied on that. And so we expect that we should get some consideration for that. Um, so, you know, we want you to pay us, you know, a year of PDI. But of course, Mr. Nielsen, not a great listener. Um, one of the things that was in the proposal when it finally came out is that they essentially stopped all of the contractual PDI in their view for the for the deal they stopped all the contractual PDI like a, right at the default. So, so they were giving us nothing, uh, no advantage. And we had basically two months of a 12.5% coupon. That was the only advantage. And we said, okay, that's not okay. There were other, reason, other aspects of the restructuring that we didn't like. So we said, okay, we'll hold out and we'll see what happens. Um, and it kept accruing. Now, we got to the point where we were going to have to sue. 
And my firm had some other real investments in Argentina. And we decided that we just could not be in a position to be suing Argentina. We knew who else owned the brands. I won't name any names you maybe have in your articles. Um, and the two other players who were big at it, we, we knew them well. They recognized the value of it and they were willing to pay us a big premium for the, what seemed like a big premium for the brands at the time. Um, so we were able to achieve, I think, what we wanted to achieve. But I think, you know, we sold them for, you know, everything else Argentina was selling at 20. We sold them for 32 or 33 or something. So it was a nice premium, but it was not getting 700 cents in the dollar like the way that uh, the other people who held this bond uh, who didn't go into the exchange ultimately did because they accrued these crazy high coupons, not for a year or two years, but they accrued them, you know, for like 10 years. Um, yeah, and yeah. Uh, that can kind I, of interest, can you I know, ask, uh, it, it adds up. Can I ask you to go back just for a, a little bit? Because I'm I'm interested in so many different parts of this story, but I'm, I couldn't help but just sort of kind of my jaw dropped in shock uh, when you said that the Frans were more heavily discounted. And I understand they're sort of a weird instrument and there's low liquidity for them, but it's sort of shocking to me that when it's clear that Argentina is going to default, that these instruments that paid out radically more than any others, I think, in, uh, that Argentina had issued, the, that they're trading at a discount. Do you, is it really yeah, just it was low crazy. liquidity? That's why we it's, bought it's, it. Yeah, it was yeah. low liquidity. And people didn't, under, people didn't really understand it. Um, I think what happened is you had a lot of people who owned it who were told this will always trade at par. And that held up for a while. For a while, uh, you know, Argentina, it was just widening. And people weren't really thinking about the end game. And they're like, okay, the coupon, the future expected coupons on this are going up. So that's fine. But when it finally cracked, when fi someone said, you know what, if they default, this could go to 20 or 30 cents on the dollar because uh, they're not paying. And those people probably weren't short other Argentine debt. They're just like, I need to get out of this. They're not, you know, if it's a, a mutual fund, they, they couldn't hedge with other Argentine instruments. They just needed to sell. And if you were somebody who is just sort of punting on Argentina that maybe the IMF is going to come and rescue them or there's going to be some deus ex machina. You just want to own the most liquid thing possible. So the kind of the bottom fishing fast money didn't really want to own that bond. So you had people who didn't really know what they owned suddenly being surprised by the bond behaving in a way that they were promised it would never behave. They're like, I just need to sell the natural buyers in a distressed situation. That's not the kind of bond they were looking for. So you really only had a few specialists like ourselves who you know, were, were in a position to buy it, uh, but also felt like that kind of an instrument, they would be willing to express their view on Argentina and that kind of an instrument. So Ben, at, at one, what point did people begin realizing, did investors begin realizing that this thing is a gold mine. And at what I went back and today I was looking at uh, both the prospectus and at least the Second Circuit opinion. There are so many uh, judicial opinions here that talked about how the interest on unpaid principal was would continue to accrue until the principal was paid as opposed to the usual the maturity yeah the, yeah the maturity right the um, usual language is until the principal is due due yeah basically until the majority <laughs> this so. one it's until paid and then it had then there was the the part about how morgan stanley was supposed to calculate the interest but then because nobody's paying them after 2005 
Argentina is not paying them, they stop calculating it. So as I understand it, the interest is at 101% and then it stays at 101%. 101%, yeah, which I think would have been fair, uh, you know, because not that there, if there were any RGO6s outstanding, at that point, you know, <laughs> they were probably trading at 10 cents. So, uh, but, maybe 101 but, was a bargain. I don't know. Um, but I, at what point does. No, like, people never realize. People never. That's, I think that's the amazing thing. I think it was a surprise to people, uh, you know, when the litigation, uh, I think when people sort of focused on it was when the question was certified to the New York State Court of Appeals. That was maybe the first time that a lot of people even realized what was going on. Because, listen, when it was in default, some of it was tendered into the initial exchange, right? You say it was a $200 million bond. Well, it was a $500 million bond, uh, uh, but 300, I think, got put into the initial exchange. Oh, wow. And 200 was left over, right? Which is three <laughs> of us. I think we were the only ones who owned it, right? So when it came time for me to sell it, with much regret and a lot of tears and gnashing of teeth and internal debate, um, when it came time for me to sell it, I didn't like go to the street because nobody quoted this bond anymore. I'm sure most people didn't even at that point, this is probably 2006 or something, 2007. Um, no, you know, nobody was um, really uh, focused on that bond anymore. I knew who the other holders were who had the same thesis as me. And, and I said, okay, would you, which you want, uh, let's, you know, show me a bit. Um, so I don't think anybody uh, was aware at that point to be honest. I think, you know, the, the, after that first Argentine, after the 2005 restructuring, I think a lot of people, people who are, wanted to be involved in Argentina were involved in the performing bonds. And you kind of know who the holder, what the holder base was for the defaulted bonds. You had like Italian retail, you know, you had a few specialist, um, uh, uh, you know, quote unquote vulture funds. Um, and it was not sort of a mainstream, uh, it was not in any way like a mainstream uh, holding. So I don't think anybody was aware of it, honestly. And if you had wanted it, um, there were three people you could have gone to to buy it and two of them weren't selling. And I'm the idiot who was, but you know, like that's, that's kind of, you know, it, it wouldn't have paid for anybody else really to do the work because they wouldn't have had access to the bond. So is there... I, this is kind of the, the litigation around these bonds came up sort of after you had sold them, or at least the, that's my recollection of it. Yeah. And, you know, in some sense, it's, it, the litigation was sort of an amusing sideshow given everything else that was going on in the courts. But I, I, I am curious and I want to ask whether uh, there were any concerns about the enforceability of these bonds. I mean, it's not uh, it's not often that you see countries saying that you know the bond is unconscionable it can't be enforced them and you know it's uh it would be too fair to too unfair to enforce it it operates as a penalty kind of weird but at least superficially plausible contract law arguments so i mean what is the legal due diligence greater for these bonds? Uh, no, well because when we first bought it that wasn't the theory right and when we bought it the yeah. second time you have to understand right I'm just trying. I'm just trying to motivate. Is this an obviously good trade, right? And so, if I could motivate it as being a good trade, if I said all that's going to happen, there's no interest on interest. All that's going to happen is we're going to freeze the bond at the last time Morgan's the freeze the coupon at the last time Morgan Stanley does the calculation, which say was the the last time things were actually trading. Let's say it was the uh, April uh, 2002 coupon, right? If they just froze it at that until 2005, that still would have been a home run trade, right? So I didn't really need to push further than that to ask questions like what happens after 2005, 
Is there interest on interest? Can that coupon go to infinity? If we had stated it and sued, I think probably we would have done more work on that. But still, the fact that we our cost basis in that bond was 20, it's kind of like, you know, did I win? You know, did I win the $10 million lottery or, or you know, is this lottery ticket a, that's a winning ticket for 10 million or 100 million? I'm still going to buy the ticket for a dollar um, and then I'll figure out whether it's a $10 million or $100 million prize after the fact. So I think that it was not, you didn't need to be convinced that it was enforceable to the utmost uh, to motivate the trade. So Ben, maybe you can't answer this, but I'd love your speculation. Um, you know, I one of I, I we know the sort of um, and I can name names because this is public. Uh, Matt Levine talks about it. You know, you had uh, Elliot that held a bunch of these bonds and uh, Bracebridge that held a bunch of these bonds. But what I did not know is. Uh, after you left, the third holder is Yale University. I mean, Which, I could be and wrong. you can you can guess who put the you know why why yeah. is Yale? I was like, so you know, you, but you know, you like you just said the two names, right? <laughs> yes, yes. I'm not going to say any more and, than that. And one of the names put that together, and yeah. I was like, Yale University. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, it's funny, like uh, the Ivy League universities always pop up. This I'll tell you a story like, you know, Hamil Mawad was the guy who's the president of Ecuador defaulted on uh, on the bond and was trying to disfavor the Brady bonds that had a rolling interest guarantee, which we owned. And you know who else owned them was Harvard Management Company. And as part of the the group, like I was in this group and I I was talking to Harvard Management Company, uh, who also owned the discounts. We were both getting sort of you know, roughly treated, I would say, uh, or they were trying to treat us roughly, and we had to take some rough measures of our own to defend ourselves. But then Yamil Mawad got chased out of Ecuador and ended up at the Kennedy School. So I was like, wow, you're, he, he tried to steal your money, but then you give him a job. So I don't know, like the way that the universities, um, you know, the, the, uh, the financial, the endowment management side of things, the way that it interacts with the rest of the university, it's, it seems like sometimes there's not a lot of, uh, a lot of communication. So um, yes, it's sort of a a, a a classic vulture trade, and it's funny to see Yale's name attached to it. But I, I'm not I'm not that shocked. <laughs> so Ben, um, you know that I, I am uh, obsessed with how sort of problematic provisions in bonds show up, and I I think I, I'll get this correct um, that you have told me the story that I should really have been. Um, living in a prior generation because there were so many more idiosyncratic instruments out there uh, maybe 15 years ago and now oh, yeah. they've become sort of so much more standardized but but the, that old is a wind up to in a bond like this like do you have a sense of who screwed it up i mean nobody seemed to guarantee know that, that was not argentina's idea Right. right. It, was, so like, was, it was not it was not hatched in the Argentine finance uh, in the Argentine finance ministry or debt management office. OK, I think it was Miguel Kigel was the, the head of debt management at that point. He is a very clever guy, but I don't think that that was his idea. I think what's happening is Argentina needed money. Countries, they tended to they need money and they would issue. It was not like at the beginning of the year that, uh, they or, or, or even on a pluriannual basis, the way you see now, they say this is going to be our local issuance plan. This is our external issuance plan. There's going to be. You know, we're going to issue so much in the two-year and under sector, so much in the five-year, so much in the ten-year, uh, so much to the cook. You know, they're usually very explicit about it and thoughtful about it, and telegraph what they're going to do. In those days, they're just like, we're going to, we need money. 
and uh, and will issue, or they would get inquiry from uh, a bank, and the bank might represent that there was interest in the market. Oftentimes, I would say the bank was just the banks were just freelancing, and they'd come up with some kooky idea and say, "Hey, we can issue." Uh, if you come up with this kooky idea, we can definitely get a lot of people to buy into it instantly. And yes, it's cheap to the curb, but it won't be obvious that it's cheap to the curb. So I think this was confected, you know, by Morgan Stanley and I think it was Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs uh, who who uh, who came up with it. I'd have to see. I definitely know it was Morgan Stanley, but it was I think it was also Goldman. And and um, you know, like they would just come up with these unusual structures to just try to tap pools of money that, you know, would not respond to a vanilla, uh, to a vanilla uh, bond issued at a price in line with the market. So I think it was all about camouflaging that you were, that, that these countries were just kind of tapping the curve in a desperate way. And I, I think the market sort of figured that out. The, let's say real money figured that out and, and, and starting in the early 2000s really pushed back against that model of issuance, I would say Pimco and Mohamed El Arian probably really led the charge on that and pushed these countries. It, it was it was a service to the countries, I think, really pushed them to be much more uh, deliberate and planful about the way that they issued, which uh, took away a lot of the incentive to do these kinds of uh, a very complex instruments. I mean, is that this? Is that the story for the GDP warrants too? That I mean, one kind of optimistic, I guess, way of looking at this is the these are sort of immature market instruments where people are trying to be creative and financially engineer um, products that'll let uh, Argentina tap the market quickly. Um, and, you know, maybe now those instruments are either likely to be better designed or less likely to be needed. Is that how we should think about the GDP? No, I, I think it's different. I think, you know, one of these is a way to, you know, to, to, disguise des- desperation in your issuance, right? It's not completing a market. It's not meeting, a, you know, the market did not need an instrument that responds to the curve shape of Argentina. And Argentina doesn't need an instrument that responds to the curve shape of Argentina. In fact, I mean, the, this, is, this is a bond that magnifies volatility. It's terrible, right? As Argentina's credit quality, perceived credit quality deteriorates, they have to pay more coupons, right? It's volatility enhancing for Argentina. It's bad for everybody. GDP warrants, I think you're right, it's an immature market and they're complex, but it's an attempt to, com- to fill a, an income or to complete an incomplete market. It's like these countries do need some way to scale payments uh, to ability to pay uh, and try and synchronize uh, payments to their ability to pay. And for the market, for us, the buyers, we would like a liability structure that is more resilient because there are enormous uh, sort of deadweight loss uh, losses associated with going through a restructuring. So to me, the GDP warrant, yes, it's complex, and yes, it's an immature market, and we have to get it going. But we're getting it going for the purposes of completing an incomplete market. Things like Frans and Spans were just investment bankers putting money in their pockets and country, you know, helping countries disguise the fact that they were desperate, that they were entering in in, uh, in in desperation and at a desperation price. So Ben, just just to follow up, and I don't know if you can uh, talk about this, so please tell us if you can't. But after reading the Franz, and then um, Mark and I recently did a 
podcast episode with a bunch of British uh, legal academics about the Argentine GDP warrant litigation. Yeah, I can't. There's very little I can say about that because that's an ongoing ongoing case. I'll just Uh, I'll I'll just sort of and maybe Mark can respond. I mean, one of the perspectives that the, the English academics had was people like Argentina should not be doing complex transactions every time they do one. They screw something up in the complexity or the mathematics, and it just it just blows up in their face. Uh, and then... I'm I'm a big proponent of knowing your limits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, don't try and don't try and do, do two trips off, two flips off the diving board yes. before you learn how to do a cannonball. I I get it, but so, I think I would distinguish here like what was going on in in the France that was pitched to them by an investment bank, right? And they probably should have done their own due diligence and realized how this was potentially a very dangerous instrument uh, for them. Uh, and they didn't, but they were desperate to the issue. The GDP warrants, and again, I, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I will say this because this is, this is, this is a, almost a moral issue rather than a legal issue. We did not write that instrument. No creditor had any hand in the design of that instrument. I'm not sure a bank had any hand in the design of that instrument based on my understanding of how uh, the uh, the bank advisors to the Argentine restructuring who came in very late based on what they've told me about what their role was. That was designed by Guillermo Nielsen, right? And so maybe the answer is don't let one guy who thinks very, very highly of his own abilities uh, design your... Oh my God, it was the same dude? It was... No, no, I mean, it was Guillermo Nielsen, design, you know, he was, the, he was the finance secretary during the restructuring and like it was his design. So, and the language, we, we had no... You know, like this, this is why... People uh, have lodged criticisms about the, the lawsuits, plural, about the uh, GDP warrant saying, well, you know, the, this is, it's stretching the language in some way. And um, I'm like, I won't comment on that as a legal matter, but as a moral matter, I think it's very different in a case where like if we had written that document or had any, had any say in writing that document. And then we sort of like left a landmine in there and exploited. No, we tried very hard to have a say in that restructuring. There were many things in that restructuring that we thought were suboptimal, both for the issuer and for us. But Argentina resolutely refused to listen. So that is an instrument of their own design that they did with, I think, without a lot of the advice, without a lot of the advisors that um, a country you would expect a country to have in that situation because they were very stubborn, and you know, like like it like uh, Grizet's judgment said, uniquely contumacious. Uh, and they wrote a bad document, right? But that's on them, not on us. So this might be a good time to talk about other types of restructuring shenanigans because um, it, it will require a bit of a shift of focus. But while we have you here, I, I me too um, sent me something the other day that I think he and you had talked about uh, sort of offline, uh, having to do with the... Um, a proposal to buy Tierra del Fuego, the Argentine province, yeah. to restructure debt. And I, so just so the broadest possible version of the question is like, there's always a little bit of arm twisting, gentle or otherwise, in a clever restructuring proposal. Sometimes the arm twisting goes a little bit too far. I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit about this proposal, but also how we should think about. Like what constitutes too much coercion? Yeah. Well, this proposal, what's nice about it is that it brings this issue into relief. It's, it's very clear. 
so Tierra del Fuego is looking to do a restructuring. They don't really need to do a restructuring, but they're being pushed by the Central Bank of Argentina, which wants to conserve dollars, to, to, uh, to do a restructuring. And it's not like a harsh restructuring, but it's a couple of years extension. Um, and it's a very small bond. So this is not anything that has like any systemic uh, implications, but just a nice example of this issue of uh, should, you be, should an issuer be able to pay for votes? So they're offering this restructuring. There's really no great reason for a creditor to uh, agree to it. Um, so what Tierra del Fuego has done is they said, okay, listen, if you agree to this, we'll pay you three points. Oh, sorry, six points, and uh, as a consent fee. And if you agree quickly, we'll pay you double that, 12 points. If you don't agree, you get nothing. So the question is, can, you know, it, when CACs were created, the idea is that sort of like you, the class of creditors votes, and if the deal is a fair deal, you can mobilize 66 and two-thirds percent or 75 percent to accept a fair deal. And the fact that an overwhelming majority accepts the deal is both the indicator and the guarantee that the deal was fair. That doesn't really work if votes are being bought. It works even less if it's not just carrots, but also carrots and sticks. And that's what we've seen in other situations. So this is not the case in Jared Fuego, where they'll say, uh, we're doing a swap, uh, we're doing a restructuring, and there are three bonds to choose from. So when you vote yes, you choose your bond and you get a consent fee. And if you, there is no way to vote no, you just don't vote yes. So you transmit nothing. And we just give you the default bond, which is like a bond that is much worse. But there are three choices, right? Good bond, good bond, and booby prize. You get the booby prize and no consent fee. And so if you don't like that deal, you might say, gosh, I, I don't know that everybody else doesn't like this deal. I better vote yes, because I'm going to get punished quite severely uh, if I end up not voting yes and being wrong about my assessment of whether the deal is attractive to everybody else. And it creates a prisoner's dilemma. And there was actually a lawsuit about this in Ecuador's um, 2020 restructuring. Contrarian um, sued Ecuador uh, because Ecuador did just that. There was a consent fee and a choice of bonds. If you voted yes, if you voted no, you got the worst bond that was worth, I don't know, five or six points less than all the other bonds. And uh, Contrarian sued over that. This is like a more complicated story about how that suit came off and it, and it didn't work and why it didn't work. But this to me is a betrayal of the implicit deal uh, that got us uh, to CACs. It's supposed to be uh, an honest vote a true that truly reveals investor preferences, not an opportunity for the issuer to try to create a prisoner's dilemma or split the class or enlist one part of the class to betray the interests of another part of the class. Ben, uh, um, this is this is fascinating. And I have to say what you say makes complete sense. Uh, but uh, and I'm going to ask you what might sound like a legal technical question, but I, I'm going to ask you anyway, because you were um, one of the people who helped design uh, the newest CACs. And so your insight into this is particularly uh, illuminating. So in the new aggregated CACs that you you and others like our friends, uh, Anna and Lee, um, Brad Setzer and yeah. others. 
you guys, I mean, you thought about this, right? I mean, oh, I, I brought I, it up. I brought it up. You can ask. It, you can ask Anna and Brad and Lee so why you, it didn't it didn't go in there. I said, can you tell us, like, what? I mean, do you? We actually have the drafting. Somebody was in the drafting committee, and right? So here's what I said. Question. I said, I have a problem. I think there are really two, uh, two. Uh, decisions that every creditor needs to make. And those decisions need to be made and registered separately. Number one is, do I agree with the plan, right? The plan of restructuring. Number two is, which bond do I want, right? Everybody else says, well, just historically, you transmit your choice and that's your yes vote. I said, well, that just leads to this problem of a prisoner's dilemma. Let's just separate these two things the vote and the choice. And the answer is it's just too, it's too complicated. It slows things down. If you have to make two choices, two transmittals to me, I did, that didn't make any sense to me because we were doing some very other complicated things. And it felt to me, uh, and I, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on it, but it felt to me like the, there were other people in that room who understood the uh, subterfuge that, um, you know, that, that countries could, uh, resort to with this loophole, and they wanted that tool to exist for for uh, for for issuers. That's that's my that, that's my take on it because I just don't see how it's really that complex, honestly. Or to even put in uh, to say like a consent fee for reserve matter can be no more than two percent of notional or whatever, right? If we feel like consent fees, we need them, but they shouldn't be abusive. Well, let's put a number on it. That's not that complicated. But uh, I was shot down on that. So wasn't isn't so I um, maybe Mark remembers too. I mean, I vaguely there's like some kind of um, equal treatment uh, provision or in like when you do the use the CACs, don't you have to like give everybody no, the same uh, no, offer? No, uniformly applicable treatment. That's only yeah. for, sing, for single for single limb. But by the way, you can drop certain bonds out of that. You can do aggregation pools. So it's not as uniform uh, as it uh, as it sound as it sounds. And it does not cover things. It says you have you have the that a dollar of claim is a dollar of claim, and everybody gets a choice off the same menu uh, of instruments, not the same instrument, but the same menu of instruments. So to me, that's fine as long as you're uh, whether you like the plan or don't like the plan, you can reflect that preference separate of your preference for an exit instrument conditional on the plan passing. Um, and to me, that solves the, if you do that and you limit consent fees to a reasonable amount, that closes the loophole. It's not particularly uh, complex. I will tell you also, there's a case, there's an English law case, you guys probably know this, a Senegon case, which related to an Anglo-Irish subordinated debt, um, where something similar was done. Basically, they said, uh, the, the issuer said, um, if you... Uh, you, if you accept this deal, you know, you get something and when uh, on your way out, you uh, essentially vote and the specifics of the vote are not that important, but you vote in a way that makes this thing worth zero for everybody else who stays out. And the uh, dissident creditors sued and, the, and this is in the UK, it was under UK law. And I believe they won on the basis of that there was like a duty to the class that was being violated by the, the consenting creditors by voting to zero everybody else. Um, so, you know, I don't know that we have that concept in U.S. law, but but definitely it's it's an issue that, um, you know, I'm not the only person who's seen it as problematic. Well, in some ways, you cannot draft around it. I mean, it might have been 
possible to foresee some of these things. But uh, so, for instance, if you you know you can put in some limit on the uh, amount that can be offered by way of consideration for favorable votes, if you anticipate that. But it seems like the the range of of strategic kind of opportunism is so wide that you would need a kind of issuer good faith duty or intercreditor good faith duty or something like that, um, which would raise a, a like its own range of questions, right? Are, are you are you would that be an improvement in the world? Do you think if there was this kind I, of nebulous... I think you would if there were no, I prefer things to be crisp, but I do think that if you said the vote for the plan is separate from your choice of instrument and there's a limit on consent fees. I think that would really narrow down the, the scope for things that are simple for the issuer to do and abusive and effective. And the more, um, you know, the, the, the more tortuous the path you force the issuer onto, if the issuer wants to do something abusive, I think the easier it is to challenge it, right? But if you leave the door wide open, then I think if, uh, like the way we have now, it's you know, almost inviting the issuer to to abuse uh, to abuse that um, that discretion. Well, Ben, thank you so much. You've allowed us to chat about our favorite topic, the Franz, and I, I think when the history of the Franz is uh, told effectively, uh, this will be a crucial piece of that history. Well, I think, you know, there's going to be, there's going to be, it, Greg Makoff has a book coming out, as you probably know, about the Argentine uh, restructuring. Um, and I think there'll be a lot in the Franz uh, uh, <laughs> in, in that book. So you can there, look forward to that. There definitely is, yeah. <laughs> and we have Greg uh, scheduled to come talk on our podcast. So this will be this episode will be out and then he he can tell us his he, he version can go into gory, 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 gory detail. <laughs> but thank you also for talking to us about the GDP warrants and the Tierra del Fuego um consent solicitation, which does seem to be a whole a different level and does call for some rethinking of the gaps that you had pointed out a while ago. But mostly I wanted to say thank you so much again for joining us, not once, but twice and hopefully uh, again soon in the future. So for sure. Thanks for having me on. It's always, uh, it's always a lot of fun.